0: Welcome to Cultural D.C.'s Tourance, New Links to Black Futures, an interactive series that explores new territory in Black future building through visual arts, technology, music, film, and performance. This inaugural artist-led convergence was held on November 10th through 13th, 2022, in Washington, D.C. This event brought together Black artists, collectors, professors, and more in a weekend of panels, screenings, and site-specific performances to examine critical questions about the development of Black cross-diasporic futures. Our first episode of the podcast, Roots of a Future, is a panel that explores how visual artists speculate futures for Black communities through their practice. This panel was held during the opening reception and touched on visual art as a fundamental component in future building and the various themes in which visual artists, gallerists, and more, perceive Black futures. Torrance aims to deconstruct the traditional inaccessible academic settings with a mission to support the development of new ideologies and frameworks that challenge us to reach outside our collective imagination while daring to disrupt traditional models across mediums. We would like to extend this special thank you to our sponsor Empower Global for their support in making this event and podcast possible join us as we explore the future together
1: thank you again for being here all of you and i'm going to kick off the panel with our first question so nujin in your work you've been investigating the psychological um, cultural and social implications of colonialism in africa and by expansion across the diaspora um, would you be able to provide more context um, to your works especially the bund- the flat piece we see in the exhibition.
2: Yeah, so first of all, thank you for the invitation to be a part of the panel, uh, to be a part of Torrance, and thank you all for coming this evening. Uh, So yes, I've been interested in the impacts of colonialism throughout the African diaspora and through many different lenses. And as an interdisciplinary artist myself, I think about the different disciplines, like whether it's painting, sculpture, performance as as language, different languages. And sometimes when people speak multiple languages, they, um, in order to really get to the core of what they're really tr- trying to say, they switch to another language, right? Because that language helps them to get to that essence of what they want to say more closely. So um, I think about that in my practice, in a sense of like choosing to make a drawing mm-hmm. as I'm working through particular ideas, or make a performance as I'm working through particular ideas. Um, I think about materials a lot, and the history of materials. Um, as, as I'm working with found materials, it's about the, like, the history that resonates in the material, the, mm-hmm. the, the past life that the object or the material has had that draws my attention. And it's not about what the object or material is when I incorporate it into the work, it's about the potential of what it can become as a part of the larger structure. Um, so this is like you know, just a little summary of uh, my process and and the way that I think about my practice as, as a whole. Okay, great.
1: And on that subject of becoming, how do you think your work speaks to laying foundations for black futures, especially since you're investigating things that have um, black communities of experience, whether it's um, White supremacy, colonialism, imperialism, so how do you think that lays the foundation for speculating on the futures of black communities?
2: Well one I think it's a big part of that is the um, the way that communities work together in order to to advance, in order to achieve a particular uh, goals. So w- within the context of my work I think about like in order for these, these bundle houses that I'm creating, the structures that I'm creating, they come out of a circumstance where it's a, it's a particular kind of crisis, mm-hmm. right? So where materials are and resources are scarce. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, there is the, the need to rely on each other, to rely on others from the community in order to be able to access a different type of material or object that one needs in order to create shelter mm-hmm. or to, to provide a certain um, to fill a certain need within one's life. And so that idea of community, thinking about um, if anything, if we're going to accomplish anything in the future, um, community is, is, is essential, mm-hmm. right? And we have, that, that word community is also pretty broad because you have different communities within a community, right? So I think about um, that Bundle House is about community and it's about resourcefulness and working together in order to be able to, to, to provide stability for uh, um, at large.
1: Okay, that's great to hear. And so Raimi, you have argued that the purpose of art is to like, hold up a mirror to society, and that's something that um, Nugent's work works to do as well. So like, what are the current issues you see represented in visual culture that need to be dealt with in order to secure a sustained and flourished future for like Black communities? <clears throat>
3: Fundamentally, thinking of the idea of community and society, Mm -hmm. the the threats to the society I find myself within. So I'll just talk about the local context. Um, So I I, I walk. Uh, I don't drive. I either take a bus, a metro, or I walk. And when I arrived here, I soon realized that there were lots of people who needed mental support um, in and around, I live not too far from of Georgia Albany. And I you was know, quite amazed walking around encountering tent cities, um, quite close to the White House, in fact, which is, as a foreigner, it seems quite peculiar that in the richest, most powerful country in the world, there are people who live within, within sight of the president's home. And I say all of these things because you know, one can hide behind the production of culture without realizing that the basis of that culture is society around oneself. And then one moves very very quickly from production to consumption and the way that artworks have the capacity to commodify whatever the experience may be. So I give two examples of people who need mental support, either because effectively their marbles are fried. And I don't know why, and I don't know them, or they're homeless. just two things. By the time they make their way into a gallery, they become something which we be consumed by the very people who have led to others being homeless and their brains being fried. And in the middle is this object which attempts sometimes to have this deep need to argue for a better world. And so so, I, I would profit that most artists are quite positivist about the kind of work that they make. They believe it is going to do something and change something or say something. Simultaneously, if they're practicing artists and that is the way they pay their bills, they want that object to be consumed. It's kind of like magic dust. They make something and then it's supposed to become terribly expensive and this will allow them to make other things. And this is going to be round about the you answering your question. Increasingly one has to really start probing the mirror as the mirror continues in this desire to function. If in its reflection it merely absorbs everything around it and becomes a cipher for something else, then the mirror fails completely. If it somehow does elicit the type of change that the work purports or says it wants to do, then maybe there is a reason to maybe not.
1: Thank you. I mean, Nguyen, as a practising artist, how do you reckon with that? So having your art available in spaces that create these conditions for black communities like tent cities and more, but also Needing to maintain, like what Raini said, like paying your bills and things like that. How do you measure the success of your art as a mirror to the issues in society?
2: I think, as of late, um, I'm, I'm coming to some places where I feel like the work is actually uh, is actually doing something, and, and in the, in the sense of. Um, just having the experience of, of being in Kinshasa in Congo um, for the the second uh, biennial that they had their Congo biennial and I worked with the students from the Fine Arts Academy there to that they assisted me in the studio and this was the first time that I was working with um, a group of people to create the work um, within a very short period of time so we spent many hours together and it wasn't like, I've I never met them before, so this is the first time working with them. And all of the things that were learned during that process and exchanged during that process, so we're talking about language, we're talking about art, we're talking about materials, we're talking about food, culture, politics, all of these different types of things as they exist. You know, They're asking me about the United States, I'm asking them about that. And so there were skills that were learned during that time. And I feel like the process of making the object, in the end, it wasn't really about the object, but about that exchange, mm-hmm. and that, that link that was formed, right? Um, uh, we're talking about links, Torrents haven't been a link, but the links that were formed. And I think that um, this is something I'm becoming more and more interested in uh, in, in that way. Thank you. I mean, I
1: mean, a lot of your work, especially as of recent, you've been traveling to the continent, diasporical things, particularly through the lens of Afrofuturism. So could you speak more on that and hmm. how that has impacted yourself and the communities that you've been involved with?
4: Hmm. I would say that uh, I was thinking, brother did just uh, uh, open up. My background, when I was young I was in the U.S. Marine Corps. And then after I had the Marine Corps I went to college, I worked in the hip-hop helping to promote concerts. The guy that trained me uh, got started on the Hammer tour, and I remember my two big regrets in life. We were doing some shows, and I missed the opportunity to meet Tupac at the time, but then he wasn't Tupac at the time. He was just a back dancer to uh, Humpty, you And so I just said, I'm gonna go on this date and skip on meeting Tupac. And I think the show was like just $5 to go see him. And the second mistake was, I think, when the first time I met Future, when the guy I worked with brought him, he was on his um, promotional tour, and I met him at the airport, and I didn't think Future was going to amount to much. Wrong again. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but, but between those two backgrounds, uh, organizing the Black Speculative Art, where well, we kind of started out as an anti-establishment thing, like what kind of got me in trouble at a talk at Princeton, I said I normally like investing in young people about 30 something on down, because anybody over 40, they're in bad marriages and debt and they're not gonna do shit, you know. So I just like organizing young people. And the other thing was, it was kind of an anti-establishment thing where when the first one of us met about a decade ago, we were sick of the Obamas We were sick of the Democrats just, and we looked at Americans as pretty much being like decadent and apolitical with their art. They don't want to do anything great. They just want to be famous. And so we presented our ideas over in Paris as like a strategic thing, because Americans are normally impressed so much by Europeans if they see something that's kind of cute. And I told them, I said, if it works in Paris, Americans will be like, oh, it's wonderful, because the French told them so. And so, so it's been, a, it's been a kind of a start as an anti-establishment thing, and one of the things John and I talked about was the decision to write and define everything. Like when I developed the manifesto, being I guess as the young people would call unapologetically black, I don't believe in using that people of color bullshit because that's like a nebulous term that has no political efficacy, and it kind of takes away our agency. I'm like, because you can, go into, you can define diversity without black people. So if, it doesn't, if I'm not involved with it, I generally don't care about it. You know, because I'm like, how are we going to eat? How are we going to get fed, keep roof over our heads, put clothes on our children's back? And so I think the biggest thing with young artists, when we started the movement, we go from, I, we go from theorization to monetization. And I'm a theorist, and so I'm like, because in a lot of these fine arts programs, they don't teach black artists about theory that's relevant to their culture. You'll go in there and about everybody else but yourself, now, you'll get technique, but you're generally not gonna be taught anything theoretical most places that tells you how to project your own agency in certain spaces. And so that's why when we did our first major show under uh, curating, the, uh, I'm sorry, unveiling visions, we wanted to do it in public spaces, that our people were comfortable coming in because at that time, we. Uh, a decade ago when we kind of really started the Afrofuturist movement, you know, the fine arts people were like, uh, and we didn't want them involved anyway. So we got people who were into comics, music, um, uh, even poetry, um, and other kind of talent uh, that were interested to come together collectively, and that's where my marine experience came. I said, look, 10 organized people will scatter 100 unorganized people. So. As long as we stay organized, we have a framework we operate from, we can build it across the world, and we have. And, uh, and then it has different application, applications because one of the things I talked about in Yaounde during my presentation were military science applications. So, the Afrofuturism is not just some little literary book club stuff. You can take something that starts out as a science fiction perspective, and then look at the everyday military application of it because that's what some other countries are doing. They're coming up with new ways of, of, of training their forces around uh, by talking to science fiction writers. And so uh, the example I gave in Yaoundé was taking the African killer bee and I told him, I said, the Ukrainian war is the first space war because uh, people over there the militia can use google earth and identify where russians are located and go go get them so i said okay imagine over here if you put together some type of self-defense force for the sake of work call them african killer bees which are a small resilient bee and then train them how to interact with drone technology and some other technologies to defend their territory that they're in and so they were intrigued by that and we And I think, uh, I just got an email, we're gonna come out, they're gonna come out with some kind of Yaoundé declaration talking about this, uh, the conference which was called African New Thought, Mm -hmm. incorporating Afrofuturism as part of African New Thought movement. And that was when we developed it, wanted to make it intentionally pan-African and transnational, So because we said, if it gets relegated to just America, it'll be some commodified bullshit. Because one of the things I remember when I met uh, Rimey in Johannesburg a few years ago, that sister that's with the Economic Freedom Fighters, when she stood up and said, our Afrofuturism is the politics of the stomach. I, was, I never forgot that. So uh, they thought about, because um, uh, I believe it was at, uh, Cape Town was the first one that had modern city that had to deal with um, climate change. In terms of, so they have to really think about practical things in related to Afrofuturism in terms of how they're gonna use it. So uh, the thing that I found out most amazing right now on the continent is growing most swiftly uh, among the Muslim population, because we're dealing in Niger now, Senegal, uh, Mali, and Cameroon, and the young African Muslim population, they have this kind of configuration where they're kind of doing it with reggae, Afrofuturism, traditional African culture as an anti um, what's the word that you're supposed to say is politically correct? You're not supposed to say the jihadist or whatever. But against the people that like cutting people's heads off. That kind of thing. Huh? Yeah, the extremist group. So they're kind of using that to organize against the extremist and they totally despise the French. So, and I told them that's good because I don't like the French either. I always make fun of them. And <laughs> I always say the only good thing the French are good at is retreating from the Germans. So, um, So that's so they are really so it becomes a kind of an organizational thing for them to critique the French and to (laughs) critique the extremists that are in their country. So it's just been amazing how it's just growing, depending on the location where uh, it emerges. And we always insist that it's based in the community, not academia, because academics will just use it to try and get tenure or some crap like that, and it won't even be fun anymore. So that's why we try to keep it community based
1: so with the work that you do um on the continent how do you think that it changes the nature of afrofuturism as it started as a well it keeps
4: it young it keeps oh. it young when i was in cameroon the average the median age is like 19 years old when i was walking down the street i'm like i was probably the only person with gray hair for like a block you notice how young the population is over there and i got to hang out with the film director jean-pierre Bocolo mm-hmm. over there he has a culture center. Darren Young and we were talking about, the, uh, and I mentioned this when I was in South Africa that the African and I believe the Afro Brazilians they're going to be the next wave of theorists and creators because they're younger, uh, they're hungrier, and I think they're going to really do something interesting. Uh, so right now, looking at it globally from it seems like it's going to be a race between the Afro Brazilians and maybe the Nigerians or South Africans for some of the interesting, uh, uh, I think the next great theorist of this stuff is going to come out of what people call the global south Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of where a lot of this stuff is going.
1: Okay that's great and I mean on your point of increased like technology used in Afrofuturism I wanted to ask Raimi about your thoughts on um, how technology can limit the human condition so in a conversation with Ingrid LaFleur, I think it was in 2020, you talked about how the increased use of technology was meant to aid people, but instead it's actually limited the human condition and imagination. So I was wondering if you could just, I guess, speak more on that.
3: Yeah, I can, but before I, before I do, you know, we don't <laughs> it. I do want to address something thing you know, that Renaud was just talking about. Mm-hmm. I, I do, you know, well, you don't actually, Um, Afrofuturism has emerged out of a crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not increasingly it is treated as if it is something that is stylistic and can be instrumentalized, And that will increasingly become bothersome. But my like all good idea is maybe this is where it is going to end up. As I said before, a moment ago, I, I do believe that most artists are somewhat optimistic about what they do, that they, they are dreaming about a better world. And so, so I, I feel quite strongly that the crisis that caused the emergence of the term, I mean, think it, it, it's rather, it's, in fact, it's a really awkward portmanteau term. You, know, you have Afro Black, you have Futurism, which is already an existing kind of European form of, of art that emerged interestingly, you know, just before the Second World War, and most of them died because they were great believers in war and machines. At least the first. And so you, you have this <coughs> collapse that occurs, and, and the future both harkens to this idea of, of artistic practice, but also some idea of, of the future. And the, the, the crisis, and, 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 and this is partly an answer to the question, that, 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 that obsession with machines, that somehow machines and speed and energy will somehow save us all has proven to be quite untrue. I- if anything, it has led to our slow demise. I and back to, to the crisis of Afrofuturism itself, is there is intense dissatisfaction with the present. And the same in the past. And so there's this sort of optimism that Afrofuturism is supposed to present to the world that maybe in this distant future that we can make for ourselves, then being black in this world will be an amazing thing. And one could argue that it it has always been an amazing thing, continues to be amazing now, that the future will. But the, the kind of social political reality fly in the face of that optimism. And so Afrofuturism is an attempt at least trying to find a way to articulate that problem. And, and so back to machines. You know, um, what, you know, when I think of the Communist Manifesto, of oh, which I'm a big fan, of, by the way, mm-hmm. um, it, it, you know, it's a documentary that says, and if you ever bother to read right to the end of it. The idea is that we, we, we all work as humanity, we find some kind of parity, and that at some point in the future, we will have machines that do, that carry out all the tedium, which will then liberate us as people to, to seek the higher things in life. So devices like a washing machine, for instance. Supposed to make life easier for everyone. An iron is supposed to make life easier. An ATM is supposed to make life easier. Email was supposed to make life easier. But ask anyone who works in an office, and they'll tell you that email has made their life worse. Speed of communication has in fact, improved their life. Our ability to fly around the world at great speed has meant that, well, I probably see more of the world than I would have otherwise. But simultaneously, it is The particulates in the sky are slowly making their way down and they will kill us. And I'm quite fascinated by the Luddites and what they have come to represent. That in order to truly criticize the machine, one has to have a kind of admiration for the machine. And I think machines are great. I often speak about the simplest of machines, which is a screw. And if you had to take go to a hardware store and take out any given screw on any given day and really look at it, it's a really beautiful object. And and so machines do have the capacity to make our lives better. But in, in that acceleration and in that ability, what we'd imagine, to save time, we lose something. And This eventually leads us to the crisis of this moment. where We have all the machines that we can imagine, and yet, most people are none the happier for those machines. But
4: But I would say the crisis is different now. Afrofuturism emerged when there was a unipolar world in the wake of the Cold War, the US triumphs over the Soviet, the Eurasian land, world, we're moving toward a multipolar world now where uh, the US is becoming more isolationist. Uh, they're trying to form two or three different systems globally now. So, some things are going to slow down because of um, the way supply chains are being restructured. So, uh, one of the biggest things that's getting ready to happen now, there's going to probably be a huge famine next year over in different parts of the world because of the war. So some people aren't going to eat next year. Um, and it's going to be very disruptive uh, because of globalization. People became dependent on other countries for certain things. And now that that's all going away, people are having to reorganize, they are going to have to reorganize their society about who's going to eat, who's going to drink, who's going to have clothing and shelter. So th- some things will be slower, um, simply because the world is not going to be as connected as it was, There's, things are going to become more expensive, uh, they're going to be winners and losers in a multipolar world. Um, for a lot of people of a certain age, the world that they were educated in and trained in, that's going away. Uh, the younger people I think will adapt to a multipolar world a lot quicker. Uh, But people of a certain age that were trained to think in a certain way of globalization or whatever are going to be frustrated because that model's not going to work anymore. You know you're raised to think oh globalize this and the other but if it doesn't make sense in terms of how you get things done anymore that's that's going away. Um, Because uh, and that's the biggest thing with climate change once you have these competing systems yeah, there's going to be a lot of uh, stuff that's not so good happening, and you're right about that, because of this multipolar world. Uh, I know the U.S. now wants to offer nuclear reactors to Africa now, because now the Africans are sitting on all these natural resources that people need, so different parts of the world want to compete for access to those resources. And, um, and then the demo- demographic problem, uh, certain countries our country's gonna, the recession's gonna probably last 10, 20 years simply because the boomers are retiring and taking all their money with them. And my generation, the Gen Xers, is a small generation. You yeah, but we're, we're starting to make money now because all these old people we've been waiting to retire now, there's, our generation is small, and the millennials aren't making enough money yet. They're the ones who screwed over the most. As, uh, for example, Africans trapped by international loans and millennials trapped with college loans. So you got black millennials in debt here, Africans in debt. So once you have less money to go around, the economy is gonna shrink and it's gonna create a kind of a dog-eat-dog situation for about 15 years until the millennials, that bubble when they mature in the next 15 years to under the current economic model that we have. So that's why they can't figure out they're trying to figure out how, what kind of economic model are we going to have going forward here in the next 10, 15 years because information-wise when Afrofuturism emerges in the 90s, you have what they call a teraflop of information in the world. But I think in the next 10 years it's going to be an exoflop in terms of all this information and money and all concentrated with a few people and then the rest of everybody else really not getting a good deal out of it. which for the communists, they might like it, that might create some revolutionary situations, but most civilizations, historically, we have models where they don't survive a pandemic. Roman Empire collapses because of a plague, and so what was it, it kind of caves in because of a plague, uh, was one of the things that hollowed it out, that made it, uh, that hollowed it out. We gotta deal with climate change, plagues for the next 10 years, accelerating technology and some uh, and demographic uh, collapse in some areas, and most societies, it's hard to just survive one of them, and we got to deal with like three, four crises at the same time, which has never been done before, which is why I think people are attracted to Afrofuturism. It seems to be a creative way of thinking about how to deal with it, because some of the previous theoretical frameworks are unable to grasp the complexity of all these things happening at the same time, which is why so many people are attracted to Octavia Butler's work, to maybe see what that looks like.
1: Yeah, I mean,
3: it's worth saying. That I'm quite an optimist. Um, I think most artists inevitably have to be sort of optimistic, or else it all goes to hell very quickly. I. It is possible and very easy, in fact, to fetishize you and think that all the solutions are going to emerge up for you. And there are deep problems with that fetishization. Because what it does is that it places all the responsibility for all the problems in the world onto the shoulders of the youth. Not on the shoulders of the people who, in fact, wield power control resources, and, you know, can actually make change happen rapidly. Now, if, you, if, if we allow ourselves to believe that, you know, each succeeding generation which does not have control are the ones responsible for change, then we, we stop looking at the people who, in fact, can't do it. Now, my challenge is, in fact, not about whether you know, some 19-year-old is going to save me. My challenge is whether the 50-year-old, who is now a governor of the state or in a parliament, whether they have the good sense to make decisions that should improve everyone's lives. I... You know, and I say this because I, you know, for me, as I, I mentioned a moment ago, afro remains in a state of crisis. I do not think that one should treat you know, any idea as a panacea. The, you know, And I do agree with you that the modern world has just gone through and continues to go through a of crisis. But we're also in a different point in history. We have access to technology that allows us to address you know, most things that will confront us, even into the future. I also don't think that, for a moment, we are about to run out of resources, at least in the short term or in the long term. If anything, we... Globally, we have hit a serious state of overproduction. We overproduce food, clothes, vehicles, name it. You know, whether we distribute them fairly to, to those who need them at particular times is, that's you know, a different discussion altogether to be had. And yeah, I guess the romantic part within me would argue that at least we continued in the trajectory that, that we're heading towards, and you know, let me just take this country for instance. The, the political dialectic, which was supposed to emerge in your last elections, I can't vote here so. So, so <laughs> I can just talk about politics easily. The, the swing that was supposed to happen didn't. And you know, I was doing the paper this morning, and this is a sign of optimism um, in the country, that, that something is emerging where people are beginning to ask different questions about the political system. More people have voted. Um, This year, this election has had the greatest number of voters for a midterm election since the 1940s. And so that that increasingly there is awareness that there is scope and latitude for change and that it is possible and that we are capable of that change. Um, you know, I, I would hate for it to be this sort of spiral that we can only go into hell from here. Uh, it's enough hell on my mind tonight. Um, from here, but I, I, you know, I, I, I find that somewhat unacceptable as a human being.
2: Is that is that think about that word uh, crisis that keeps coming up? Um, like bundle house is about crisis, mm-hmm. it's about rebuilding one's life, it's about starting over after some sort of crisis. Mm-hmm. And so it's in, in thinking about the ideas of, of how, does, uh, how does the work, you asked the question, asked the question before, like how, how do I kind of mitigate those, um, those, 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 those two where it's like making the art as a way of making a living as well as thinking about the serious topics and issues that Bundle House addresses. Um, how do I kind of balance those, those two out? And one of them is, is, is thinking about in order to be able to, from um, my position, in order to be able to affect any kind of change, about like what resources And I feel like through this work, I'm able to build, whether that's financial resources, whether that's like um, resources that are now available through other uh, people as I expand my network and community, uh, this enables me to be able to affect the change. So when I think about that question about, um, you know, what can art do, we're we're living in a a time where there's some really serious things that that human beings are dealing with. What is the function of art and what can art do? This is the way that I think about that.
1: And I mean, as you mentioned, your art is a response to crises. So, how do you think your art will change with the continued crises that people are experiencing, like not just in America, but across the diaspora as your work addresses cross diasporic issues?
2: I think it's um, one, it's so I was reading an article about <clears throat> the amount of clothing uh, that's being, like, fast fashion is producing all of this waste. And that are just washing up on the shores of the continent of Africa and other places, just washing up. And as a person who works with found materials, it's like, here's a plethora of things that I can use, but this is a problem, right? I would prefer not to have all of this waste to be able to use. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it, it 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 is that dilemma, right? So if the waste wasn't there, it's like, then what would the work be about? How do I continue to think about the ideas and the themes that are embedded in the work and address those through art practice um, without that, without those materials. and I think that that helps to um, uh, expand the idea of what art is in the first place. I think it also um, helps me to think about uh, new ways of of thinking through a problem to solve, right? I, I think about Making art is, for me personally, it's it's like constantly solving a a series of problems, constantly solving problems over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And so if those materials aren't there, then um, I'm still addressing the same themes, there's new problems to solve without the the materials or the found objects. I
1: mean, earlier in this panel it was mentioned how art becomes more of a commodity over time. So my question is, is, what is needed for Black artists' work to flourish as pieces of cultural heritage, as opposed to pieces that are commodified by the art world? Yeah,
3: I, I'm a big fan of commodity. I, yeah, I, I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I make works, and when people buy it, I, I'm really happy about that experience. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have no objection and <laughs> yeah, I, I spoke at length about the commodification of artwork in the beginning, but yeah, I, I, you know, I'm i a great supporter of the making, the production and the consumption of artworks. In fact, I, uh, you know, there are projects which have happened around the world where large supermarkets, so not, not in the United States, for instance, one year there's a um, homeware store in Britain called Habitat. And Habitat commissioned a number of artists to make works for them. Um, and those artists sold an awful lot of art mm. because people went to Habitat. Sainsbury, Sainsbury is the equivalent of, let's see, mm. like, I know, one of the supermarkets here. Same way. Like, same Different. Yeah. <laughs> and they they also owned a hardware store called Sainsbury home, Sainsbury home, whatever, something like that. And they made shower curtains. A, a, a friend of mine, a fellow artist, um, designed shower curtains for them as an artwork. And Sainsbury sold out of those particular shower curtains. And again, you know, so the, the, this direct commodification meant that people were consuming real artworks in their homes. I, I think that... The fact that Tesla sets up their shop as if it's a small art gallery tells you how important that, that process is in the imagination. I I think that, you know, to directly answer your question, we simply need more people to buy works of art made by black <laughs> artists. It really is quite simple. The, the, the bit that is not simple is that People generally tend to buy work that they can easily identify with. And when works are are easy to consume by the people who have lots of money, and the space to consume those kind of works, then they'll buy those works. Um, Works can be critical of the status quo, and there was a small show recently of and Baskar, uh, Jean-Michel Baskar's work. You know, well, one thinks of it, what the issue if you were to analyze the work itself. It is really critical of everything around it. But somehow, yeah, it goes beyond that, you so know, everybody wants one in their home. And, and so commodification in and of itself is, is not the issue here. Um, <coughs> as a practitioner, after a while, all that stuff piling up in storage and in your house, becomes a problem. You, you really want someone to come along and take it away and just buy it. That so you don't care after a while. Just get it out of my life so I can have more room. Uh, so, so, yeah, I, I think that a much larger discussion to take place. And, uh, and I'll just end on this. Uh, many years ago in Britain, I, I carried out a study of the Black and their role in both the, the creation of artists and their ability to consume. And I, I feel that a lot of education is going to, mm. into that. Yeah. But if you do in fact do want to support culture, then buy the stuff. That's it.
4: <laughs> I think Stacy Robinson out of our collective he was the one, uh, when Sheree Renee Thomas, the uh, science fiction fantasy writer, we had an event in Memphis. And we came at that point, we create a lot of our projects for the everyday person in the black community. because Stacy said, you know, the brother that's getting off work might not have $1,000 for the pot, but he's got $30 to buy this piece that I, because he wants some stuff on his wall too. So. We'd rather focus on the people who have 30 to $50 than the people who have $1,000. We don't pay attention to them that much because we'd rather have, because we think of uh, when we used to throw parties and concerts as an undergrad, we'd rather have a place like this with 200 people in it rather than something with just 30 people in it. We're thinking of, uh, we'd have a DJ, we're gonna have the art, you can buy t-shirts, you can buy prints or whatever, and that's how you build a following you have Kickstarter, all this other stuff. So we've, we have kind of a self-contained unit now. We got the people who do theory, we got the people who do the art, we got people who do AI. We just did a movie recently and we keep it all black. Our own chain is all black. We got a few white allies, but they, they know the game. Every, you know The editor, the theory, that we selectively bring in allies that we've screened proper, appropriately. So we control everything internally you know that because uh, so we're not dependent under the old system like uh, when you started the Harlem Renaissance or even that period, most of the black artists, you had to have a white patron or, or do something for the communists. So this is really the first generation of black folks where they can create these autonomous things here in the country where it can be self-financed through Kickstarter. That's why I love the internet and Kickstarter and all that stuff. You can go and if you've got a bunch of friends, you can put a Kickstarter, raise money for a project that's how we got our movie out underneath. That's, um, and I'm the executive producer on that and David Kirtman, who's a part of our study group, 26-year-old brother who uh, is going to be part of the Smithsonian exhibition, 90-minute feature-length film, film. So now we're at the part of, okay, we can create, we can design, so what does the business piece look like in terms of smart contracts? What does it look like to control your IP? And, and leave it for your kid or whatever. So like a lot of these artists that don't have a will and the white folks get their shit anyway, how does this stuff stay inside your family? I mean, cause uh, like in terms of the, the stuff related to the black speculative art movement, I already, we've already decided who we're gonna leave that to. So the community still controls uh, what we've created. So it doesn't end up in some kind of you know, some kind of obscure, some place where people got to go pay C, so. Mm-hmm.
1: So I just have one last question before we wrap up, and the question is to the three of you. How can visual culture be a more impactful tool for imaginations? like what we have now, how can we do more? And then that's my final question to the panel.
4: Create content. Uh, with the streaming services, we're in the middle of the content wars. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, we're in the content wars. so you got to get it done. And a finished product is the best product in terms of you want to sell your art or your film um, and then get it seen at a certain type of uh, venues. And then um, uh, a young guy we are working with now, he couldn't believe that he, people came up to him on his film and they're talking about offering him two or three million two or three million dollars for an independent production that might have cost $50,000. Mm-hmm. But because he knows how to edit, do the score, uh, and he did a lot of it himself, he's created something that would, might make him financially independent. And so that's uh, kind of you're in this race to create content right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, so many of these entities are outsourcing
0: mm-hmm.
4: how a lot of this stuff gets done now. So. The people that can create content and keep it in-house are going to really benefit in terms of how their imagination gets to the screen and the audience that they know, because they know their audience better than these people that do analytics. Mm-hmm. You know That's why even though I don't like all his movies, I'm a fan of Tyler Perry. He knows how to, his audience supports his stuff, mm-hmm. and he's a rich because <laughs> of it. Even though I don't like his content, he, he has a good business model. Yeah. Meijin, um, how about you?
2: Yeah, I think, um collaboration. Mm -hmm. Uh, I read a quote a long time ago, it said, um, good collaboration produces universal thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think about um, the future of being able to sustain oneself, you know, because after a while, like, especially with art markets, there's these trends, you know, people are interested in this one time, and then they're no longer interested in that. And if you are part of a network that's collaborating, um, the possibility for um, a more sustained um, career is, is greater. And, and not necessarily just like in terms of like art as a career, but in terms of being able to, uh, to create, mm-hmm. to be able to have um, some sort of relationship with those uh, connected to you, around you, um, enables that, that that, that sustainability for, for future for everyone. I think collaboration is, is definitely important.
1: Okay, and Raimi, how about you? Hmm.
3: Yeah, you know, I'm quite romantic when it comes to the question of impact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Increasingly, impact is, is meant to represent a broad base. Um, that is what impact is. Mm-hmm. that lots of people like what you do. I think that artists shouldn't be particularly interested mm-hmm. in whether anyone really likes what they do at the moment of production. I think people need to be true to themselves mm-hmm. and they need to able to commit to the very thing that they want to do. And if they're lucky, people might like it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if they're not, carry on regardless. I'm not talking about some kind of blind commitment to oneself. That's what I'm expressing here. I think that if people... If I chose to speak in a language that no one understood here, and I can in fact, um, then I wouldn't be much use to anyone Mm -hmm. in this setting. And so, in in that commitment to oneself, one needs to at least strive to communicate what that individual concern is, but but I, I have my misgivings about a world where, you know, if your work does well on Instagram, it's supposed to be the biggest thing in the art world. That, that I, I, I don't think, is significant. I think it's the ability to, to really do something. And it may, it may take a while for the world to understand what you're doing. Just do it anyway. That's what I think in practice.
1: Yeah. On that note, thank you so much for being here and thank you to the audience for listening.